Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. I am joined by Raul Burbano. He is the director of Common Frontiers. Thank you for joining us, Raul. Thank you for having me, Sylvia. Can we talk a little bit about the events of NAFTA, the North American Trade Agreement, that uh, in the face of the election of President Trump has undergone a significant transformation and what it means for us in the labor movement? Um, so in terms of the, I guess, the NAFTA version 2.0, which is now called, well, I guess for Canada, it's called the Canada-United States-Mexico Agreement. Uh, the United States obviously calls it United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. But I, I think the implications and what it means is, and it, it's not very different. It's pretty much the same type of agreement that uh, the original NAFTA was. So I know that it's framed under a very progressive uh, vision but if we look at it, uh, and although there are some changes that are positive that we can take out of it, and, and mainly those changes come due to um, civil society organizing around this, but in general, uh, you know, this is still the same model as the original NAFTA agreement. It, it's focused on pushing a neoliberal trade agenda uh, of privatization and deregulation that favors corporations at the expense of democracy, the environment, human rights. And really what it seeks to do is, uh, you know, in the long run, is create this framework where privatizing profits and socializing losses are the key uh, for the architecture of impunity that we see on a, on a global scale. Um, we see m many agreements come to fruition to try to concentrate wealth in the hands of a few. In Canada, some of those examples have been how the governments try to you know, create a diversion from from the economic challenges by focusing on particular industries, and uh, we've seen how auto workers in Canada and the U.S. have been given some uh, relief, but at the at the expense of giving up many of their labor rights. Can we talk about the significant impact that neoliberalism has had on uh, union movements and the movements towards more social democratic society? Well, the, the free trade model or ideology has weakened labor movement and the rights of labor workers because really what, the, because in, in the past, for example, on, under NAFTA, the original NAFTA, there was a side agreement for labor, which was uh, unenforceable. So it was wonderful. It sounded great on paper and it had all these wonderful things about protecting labor rights. But the reality is that it was unenforceable. So unlike like investment rights, which are enforceable, uh, in the trade agreements, labor was just left up to governments to, you know, hopefully you maintain your labor standards and we won't do anything about it. So what we saw in Mexico was a continued attack against labor leaders, uh, human rights leaders. And then in Canada, of course, we've seen also weakening of, of labor rights in terms of, you know, the, the you know, hourly rate, for example, the outsourcing of jobs from Canada for workers who are paid, you know, quite well as union workers who have pensions, who have benefits and outsourcing those jobs to other countries, uh, for example, uh, in Mexico, that makes it a lot cheaper and they're able to exploit workers and not pay them those type of issues. So what it does, it facilitates a corporation's ability to move its industry back and forth wherever 
the regulations on labor, environment, health, human rights are lowest, and they can pay people the lowest, and then utilize that as a tool to weaken, uh, you know, labor in other countries because they can say, well, if you know, if in Canada you have stronger labor rights, then we'll send people, you know, we'll send jobs to Mexico where they have weaker labor rights. So in Canada, of course, or in the north, then governments try to say, well, in order for us to compete for investment, we need to lower our rights. And what it, what these trade agreements really bring is is to harmonize, you know, all the basics of society, whether it's in environment, labor, human rights. Uh, to the lowest common denominator where workers have you know very little to no rights or no power and all the power and protection goes to corporations to ensure that their profits whether it's in canada or whether they're in mexico they will always be protected through international mechanisms like the like the, you know the free trade agreements uh, that, that have been signed by canada as we see the erosion of union uh, membership, even, you know, I mean, the, it's at, at its lowest now, I think it's something like 12%. Can we talk a little bit about what this means for social organizing, for mobilization, uh, when people are so pressed, you know, against low wages, high, you know, housing costs, high food costs, and education that is continuously increasing and becoming a business in, in many of our societies. Yes, of course, it has a, you know, a detrimental impact on Canadian society, on Canadian workers, on the labor movement. Uh, firstly, because, for example, the labor movement is a key institution uh, that fights for social justice, human rights, labor rights. And uh, these free trade agreements weaken the ability of uh, the people to, you know, to participate in the labor movement in terms of, you know, having strong labor movement. It, it forces uh, unions, for example, to create two-tier workers uh, because if they want to, you know, re- when they renegotiate contracts with corporations, again, they cannot continue to give the pensions. They cannot continue to give all the benefits. Otherwise, the argument is the corporations will shut down and move to other countries. For example, like we see in Oshawa today with GM. Right. So we have communities that are completely dependent on these industries. These industries, uh, you know, our governments uh, invest in these corporations, often bailing them out like they did with GM. And then, you know, when they feel that they don't have enough profit, then they're willing at, you know, a moment's notice to leave and to move to other countries. So, you know, this weekend's obviously the labor move, which I think is, is I wouldn't be surprised if it's not a strategy uh, by, you know, corporations that, you know, these free trade agreements take power away from unions, which means it weakens the ability of people to, to unify and work together in a collective voice. Uh, it makes it easier for corporations to impose their will, i.e., you know, minimum wage. When we look at uh, places that aren't unionized, you see that, you know, workers are, um, by and large, paid much lower with little to no benefits, precarious work. These are the conditions that we're seeing ourselves in the North that we have already seen for many years in the past, which is precarious work, which is work that is underpaid with little to no benefit, and people are struggling. People have to work multiple jobs to be able to survive, all in all, because you know the, the trade agreements as an architecture that helped facilitate capital and corporations really is unit at the expense of workers. And I think that's the big challenge in, in Canada, we realize that in order for us to get, you know, minimum payments to set the minimum standards, we, it's not good enough now to have a local legislation because we can implement, you know, local legislation that protects the environment, that, that protects, um, you know, workers' rights. But if in any way they violate these free trade agreements, corporations can sue uh, the Canadian government 
for um, you know any of this legislation that might violate their profits or future profits, and then the Canadian government either has to indemnify their corporations or potentially going forward, what they often do is modify those uh, laws, usually you know trend downwards, deregulation so that we don't have you know we're not sued by corporations. So I think this is a big challenge that we have that often we don't see all the impacts of these free trade agreements. We only talk about often the mainstream media and those who support free trade agreements only talk about the benefit. Supposedly they're supposed to give us a lot of jobs, although there's no correlation for that. Uh, you know, and I think that's what we need to talk about is what are the impacts and how as a society we actually have more of a say because we have to keep in mind that these, when it comes to these free trade agreements, we have little to no say as civil society. Yes, there are some consultations, minimal, but in general, as a civil society, those uh, those who have all the say in these negotiations tend to be corporate lobbyists. They're you know always given access to to the agreements way before anybody else. Their demands are, are fought for by our negotiators in these free trade deals and, and, and negotiations. But by and large, the people's demands aren't uh, heard of. So a perfect example is. You know, the, the, the former Trans-Pacific Partnership, Canada did a bit of a consultation and went around different cities asking people for its input. By and large, the majority of Canadians rejected the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, Canada, went, you know, a little bit after that, went around and signed, you know, a, a renamed Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, but it's still the same agreement, and even though the majority of Canadians were opposed to that type of agreement. Now, not only are these uh, agreements are made in our name, but they're actually um, also causing terrible outcomes for people in, in other countries that are partnered with this. So can we talk a little bit about how these trade agreements, for, for instance, have not only enabled and propagated violence in other countries? I, I think the example that comes to mind is that when workers try to even have minimal uh, arrangements that improve the lives of workers, they are subjected to terrible acts of violence. You know, the, the free trade agenda and the free trade agreements, what they do is they set parameters for governments to ensure that they protect the investment of multinational corporations, many of them um, based or registered in Canada, the U.S. and Europe, who are investing uh, quite a lot of money and resources in the global south. Uh, particularly, for example, if we take the extractive industry, mining, oil and gas, uh, much of, of these natural resources in the global south are on uh, indigenous territories, for example. So when we're talking about mining, uh, often these corporations, uh, in conjunction with local investors and, and the local governments, they, they don't participate in, in consultations for communities, whether they want you know, extraction. They often don't engage in uh, reasonable environmental assessments, and often this causes conflict with communities who are in the global south, who are often on these territories, who are being exploited, who are being, uh, you know, removed from their territories. And I think a perfect example in terms of just the framework of how communities fight, you know, um, multinationals, the global south, is the the assassination of Berta Cáceres. Berta Cáceres and Honduras uh, and the Lenca community uh, were fighting against you know, uh, the, the development of hydroelectric on their company by an international company. Um, you know, the company was found, or some members linked to the company were found recently guilty of, you know, of, of the murder or accessory to the murder of Berta Cáceres. They had been former employees or former security folks. And I think it, just, it goes to show you that 
you know, multinational corporations, often in conjunction with the local governments, which in many cases, like in Honduras, are corrupt and themselves uh, engaged in repression of their own people, are willing to do whatever it takes to uh, manage the needs of corporations and investment in their communities, even if it means removing them from their lands, destruction of the environment, or in many, in some cases, that includes violence and intimidation. And we see this on and on in countries like Colombia, like in Mexico, like in Honduras, where you know multinational corporations from Canada, in many cases, and in some cases, have been involved in egregious uh, violations. Uh, and, and there are other cases where uh, Canadian corporations are in Canadian courts due to violations where some of their subsidiaries or some of their uh, you know initiatives are seen to have violated uh, community impacts, for example, in, in Guatemala, uh, in Ecuador, for example. In Canada, recently we saw the military being sent into Wet'suwet'en territory, which is unceded lands of the Wet'suwet'en people here in British Columbia. And we we see the the news blips and, you know, two seconds show that the government is just trying to facilitate the easiest and the most accessible, you know, um, pipeline, right? The pipeline, this is the only place that it can go. But the argument is, if that were the case in another country, like say, if the if Manhattan was the only possible solution for a pipeline to go through, um, you know, there will be a different rea- response, right? But when it's indigenous territory, when it's... Um, the areas where the workers live, where the people who produce all the labor, it seems that our rights are simply overpassed. So these companies have government without ever having to face election by the people. Can we talk about the implications, not only on our electoral process, but also in the long-term harms that this causes for future generations? Free trade agreements uh, in of themselves, what they promote are mega development, mega industry under a, a capitalist model. And, and we know pretty clearly that that model doesn't take into consideration, you know, indigenous rights or indigenous interests, free, prior and informed consent. Uh, it doesn't take into account the environment, the impacts to the environment, to the ecosystems, to society, to human nature. So, you know, the big challenge is that the promotion of these mega projects, whether it's mega dams, mega extractive industries, uh, often and in many cases run, run counter to what local communities want or how they envision and how they want to live life. Many indigenous communities see their connection with the land as paramount as part of their culture, as part of their cosmovision. And without that, when you rupture the relationship between you know, individuals in the land and community in the land, then you destroy anything. It doesn't matter if you, you know, have a great shopping mall, for example, or you produce, you know, lots of things in that area. And, you know, I've been to Latin America, and when I've met with communities who often say, we don't want to make a highway here. What we want is we want to have connection to our corn or connection to our fields. That for us is life, and that for us is the most important thing in the world. And although it may be important for people in North America, to have a very large mall or a very large you know, highway, um, the, the, the difference is it doesn't take into account the cosmovisions of other communities, uh, many in the global south and in Canada as well, as you mentioned, you know, um, the Wet'suwet'en people who would, you know, they've made it pretty clear that they don't want a pipeline to their territory because the most important thing for them is their relationship with the land. And we know in many cases pipelines rupture, um, contaminate, and then what would that leave for the next generations of people living on that land? And, and I think when we, when we talk about what's important, uh, we shouldn't only be focusing on profit and corporate profit, 
but rather also the impact to, to communities, the impact to the environment, and the impact to the future generations that have to live on the land. What is our responsibility in co-creating uh, organizations that allow us to, you know, have collective power, to have a voice, to have a say, and a way to protect our land, our ability to survive, and to create a better world for our children and the children to come? Yeah, I mean, the labor movement has been critical as a collective movement to ensure that, for example, we have some of the basic things in Canada that we have, that we today take for granted. Uh, so, you know, things like, you know, health and safety standards in at work, uh, minimum wages, uh, paid holidays, simple things like that that we today take for granted for is what the labor movement uh, in the past has fought for very successfully through organizing, through educating, and through mobilizing. And today that continues. Um, obviously, it continues in different areas. It could also it also means you know supporting workers in their day to day work, but it also means building solidarity with struggles around the world, whether it's for the environment whether it's for a national pharma care program that, for example, the Canadian Labor Congress today is trying to motivate the Canadian government to undertake. These are key collective um, programs that we need and that the labor movement with its large base and with its resources uh, can help build that towards those programs because we need to continue to build collective programs to help the majority of people. And, you know, we're living in a time where the mantra or the, the logic is, you know, Every individual just pulls themselves up by the bootstraps and they don't have to worry about anything else. But the, the reality of the fact is we need to have a safety net in order to help people due to the economic situation, due to the environmental crisis that we have, because, you know, we are a collective and we're only as good as the other person is. And I think the obsession of individualism, uh, which ha obviously, you know, runs counter to the labor movement, the labor movement believes in collective power. And when we build our collective power, then we are stronger, and then we can protect all the um, different things that we believe in, whether it's you know not only labor rights, but the environment, human rights, uh, and all those issues that I think are important uh, for all of us. As we are facing the unfolding of this NAFTA 2.0, how do we prepare, how do we brace for uh, the changes that are coming and the continuous eradication of um, you know, nationalized resources and further privatization, which seems to be more of what, what is to come? Well, I think the big thing we can do is, is through education. Um, you know, in terms of most people, when they think about, you know, trade agreements, they think trade, which is great. Everybody wants trade. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we look a little bit deeper into these trade agreements, most of the provisions in these trade agreements have little or nothing to do with trade. And they're about setting policy policy that benefits corporations over all the things we've talked about, environment, human rights, labor. And so we have to make those connections uh, and we have to be ensured that if our government's going to negotiate anything like a free trade agreement in our name, uh, we have to be clear that really they're doing that in our name and not be, you know, kind of confused by that. Those are the kind of things that we need to look at is ensuring that we make links between things like, you know, as, as not important for many people as a free trade agreement. It sounds like, right? Uh, and link it to how that how that impacts worker rights, how that impacts uh, free and informed consent, how that impacts the environment. These are key things because there are many provisions in these uh, trade agreements that make it really difficult and even impact our sovereignty. For example, there's a provision in the new 
uh, Canada, Mexico, US trade agreement that if we are to engage in any agreement with any other country, like for example, China, uh, you know, that's considered a you know, non-market uh, type of uh, country, we have to advise, you know, our, our NAFTA partners and, and give them, you know, a heads up. In essence, this is a violation of our sovereignty. And this is what I think, you know, these free trade agreements are much more than just about trade. They're about send, setting a corporate agenda that pushes privatization and deregulation at a level that is way above what, you know, even our, our democratic legislature is, is there to do. Not only is that alarming, but it also means that we could also be prevented from having business from other partners if you choose to. Absolutely. It, it could, the impacts are, you know, incredible in terms of what it can do. And often what it does is it, what they call is the chill effect. You know, although it may not directly prevent us from doing something, what it does, it creates a chill effect. Because if we know that either we can be sued by that or if we know that we can, you know, face ramifications by somebody like the United States, who's, you know, our biggest trading partner, then we ourselves may, you know, uh, not undertake that. And that's the, that was the big fight by most of civil society against the uh, investor state uh, clauses in these trade agreements, which we all said we totally opposed because it gave corporations the right to bypass our local courts and sue our government in international tribunals that have no democratic norms here in Canada. And in many cases, uh, you know, it, it was hard to point to, but the reality is you can see that uh, you know, the Canadian government or any other government uh, was would be concerned to pass any legislation that then we could be sued for in these international tribunals and would have to indemnify corporations for millions and millions of dollars. In Canada, I mean, it was no coincidence under the original NASA, we were the most sued country. I think we ended up paying about $314 million out from our you know, taxpayers' pockets to corporations who sued us for an array of things, whether it be environmental, because you know, we impacted their, their profits, because uh, we didn't allow, for example, you know, uh, you know, fracking in the St. Lawrence, let's say, as, as an example. I also see how this is continuously fragmenting um, workers against workers and dividing people as we have these multiple tiers, you know, those uh, visiting workers that, who come on visas and, you know, they're second class citizens, they get paid significantly less, have less rights. Can we talk about... Um, I guess the responsibility to not only uh, create uh, a vision and co-create the instruments that allow us to align our our, our values with what we co-create in the society. The free trade agreements uh, work towards allowing, you know, the, the free trade of materials and products, but of course it doesn't give the same rights to people. Uh, and it's very restrictive in terms of how, you know, the free flow of, of people across borders. And, and we know that's wrong. And, and people have the right, you know, to come to Canada if they have, you know, the right in terms of political refugees or economic refugees. And, and there's certain requirements under international law that we should support that. And and so under these, these agreements, what we have are, you know, so, you know, different categories of workers, you know, temporary foreign workers, let's say, that can come and work based on certain skills. And what this creates is sort of, you know, uh, us against them type, because then, you know, people in Canada say workers are coming from the global south and they're taking our jobs. Uh, and, this, and this is the issue that's creating that instead of us focusing on what is the problems, which is often corporate, um, corporate policies 
at the expense of workers, we start to, you know, we, like we see in the U.S., we start to see the rise of xenophobia uh, and racism as part of the issues that are impacting us. And I think, you know, as a, as a community, we have to really look at what are the root causes of some of these issues. Why are so many people coming, for example, uh, the humanitarian crisis is coming from Central America to the north from Honduras. These are based on failed economic policies. Canada signed a free trade agreement with Honduras in 2013. Uh, Canada has, has imposed quite a lot of investment in Honduras, and yet this investment, for some reason, is not making its way to the hands of the majority of Hondurans. That's why they live in massive poverty. And instead, the Honduran government has to impose violence in order to control the people who are opposing to some of that investment in, in their country. So this model of you know, trade and investment, um, really what it's doing is creating the, the humanitarian crisis that we see. Uh, and again, it's not that unique from um, the original free trade, the NAFTA agreement who went in Mexico. Uh, after the free trade agreement was signed, years later we, we saw that over one million campesinos from rural Mexico were displaced. Many of those people were displaced from their land, tried, had to move to Mexico City to try to find work. Obviously, there's little to no work in Mexico, Mexico City, so where else do they head but north? Although neoliberalism was first experienced you know, uh, in Latin America and we were the first lab for it, it is now a widespread policy and capital is organized and workers must be organized as well. How do people take on this challenge? How do we not only take on the responsibility of educating and helping ourselves and helping others be connected to information, but also have fun and create community in the process. The neoliberal model, which, as you mentioned, absolutely correct, that, you know, was tested and imposed in many South American countries and often through dictatorships, like in Chile, uh, where, you know, Pinochet imposed the neoliberal model from, you know, the Chicago boys. And what we saw was obviously devastation and destruction of the economies. We, we now see that that's not just happening in, in the South. Obviously, in Canada, it's different. But that model now and those issues that many of the people in Latin America have been experiencing in terms of you know, precariousness, uh, low wages, uh, ununionized jobs, inability to access benefits through your work, all those things now are impacting us in the global north. So people are starting to realize that, wait, this model not only impacts people in the global south, but it's also impacting us here. Uh, people are working multiple jobs, precarious jobs, and these are the big issues that are now impacting all of us around the world. And it is is a result of the model. And I think as as people around the world, uh, the first thing we need to do is build interconnectedness of these issues and struggles. So it's not so much that we feel bad or we feel sorry for people in the global south or people who are de being displaced, but rather that we are in solidarity with people in those fights because we are connected to them through the same struggles. We too are struggling with the same thing. And in essence, we need their solidarity as well because we learn from their struggles and they learn from our struggles. And when we build those struggles together, uh, we build you know, sort of a stronger unified movement that then transnational corporation can say, well, you know, if you don't do it here, then I'm going to go to another country. And I think that's what we need to build is you know, capital is international and it tends to be united, and we need to build movements that are united and interconnected. There are many ways in pe which people can express themselves. It doesn't have to just be, you know, one particular way, i.e. protests on the street. The key is that people have to start to kind of wake up 
and say, look, this, this no longer can continue. And instead of waiting uh, to, to their com- that they are completely affected and there won't be anybody else there to help them, they need to join with those who are struggling. So when our indigenous brothers and sisters in Canada who are often at the front lines of the struggle for the, to protect the environment, when they're standing up to protect the environment, we need to join them. Not because necessarily somebody who lives in a city like Toronto is going to be impacted by the rupture of a pipeline in Wet'suwet'en territory, but rather because we know that the destruction of the environment is impacting me today and impacting the future generations. And that's the reason why I should be in solidarity with communities who are fighting to protect their land and protect the environment because they're not doing it for themselves. They're doing it for all of us and we need to do that collectively. Thank you so much for being with us today. How can people access your uh, work and how can they stay connected? So you can visit our website at www.commonfrontiers.ca. Thank you. Take care. We've come to the end of our show, Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com.